Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. This morning to our brother Don Pell along with us, and we're looking forward to what the Lord's going to share with us through our brother Don. Good morning. I'm going to ask you to turn with me, please, to the book of Acts, chapter number 20. Acts, chapter number 20. And while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little idea what my topic will be this morning. As I was growing up, <clears throat> I was privileged to hear a lot of very powerful preachers, the likes of A.P. Gibbs, for instance, as mentioned earlier. And it wasn't uncommon for those preachers to say, this is what the Bible teaches now, there are other people who will say, you know, this is what the Bible says. So here's the question. Is there a difference? And if so, what is the difference between what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches? Are they necessarily the same thing? Well, there are many people who will say this is what the Bible says to make it say whatever they wish it. To say, to build their own case. Usually they'll take an isolated verse and say, looky here, this is what the Bible says. But to discover what the Bible teaches requires us to learn the whole counsel of God, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Now, Paul the Apostle was one such man. And if you're there at Acts chapter number 20, I'm going to pick it up at verse 27. Acts 20 and 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the, what the Bible teaches, the whole counsel of God. And now he goes to explain what the whole counsel of God is regarding overseers. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves." Now, revealing the whole counsel of God, Paul has revealed some important things about the overseer. First of all, he's appointed by the Holy Spirit of God. And then he goes on to point out that it is more than a title. It's a great responsibility. Remember to Timothy, Paul wrote, If a man des desire the position of a bishop, an elder, an overseer, he desires a good work. Some seek the title in recognition, recognition rather. We ask the question, how many are willing to do the work? By revealing the whole counsel of God, Paul was able to effectively defend the gospel, defend the, the faith. He would sometimes even refer back to the Old Testament scriptures. Likewise, he says, an elder, a bishop, an overseer must hold fast by sound doctrine, there it is, the whole counsel of God, both to exhort and convict those who 
contradict. In other words, an overseer must have a grasp of the whole counsel of God. Now, I want to just draw your attention to someone. We've studied this in Wednesday's past about another person who did that very thing. And that's, this incident takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 3. You don't need to turn necessarily. But remember, we find Samuel, and he's at the tabernacle. He's a priest, and now he's to become a prophet. God purposes to reveal something to Samuel. I remember, we were told that uh, the Word of God was rare in those days. There wasn't much revelation. And so God approaches Samuel and a voice, Samuel, and he goes to Eli. Eli says, I didn't call you. And they do that two times. Finally, the third time, when God's voice called Samuel, Eli now surmised that it was Almighty God that was trying to speak to Samuel. And he told Samuel, just simply say this, when you hear the voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now, I'm going to just read what God said to Samuel. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, and that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now remember, Samuel is afraid to tell Eli the news. But Eli presses him. He said to Samuel, God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things I said to you. Then we read, then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. He revealed the entire counsel of God. Supposing Samuel had said to Eli, you know, God's a little disappointed that your sons made themselves vile and you didn't restrain them. Not terribly happy about that. Well, Eli might have thought, well, you know, this is kind of like a slap on the wrist. I'm going to probably get disciplined. It's not going to be so bad. But Samuel included all the judgments that I just read, eventually ending up in the removal of the priesthood. He revealed the whole counsel of God. And God then, we read, honored him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, there are sometimes people use standalone verses to prove a point or a case, and I just picked probably the verse that I think is probably the best known, probably most memorized verse in Scripture. And it's found in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I've heard uh, preachers, uh, heard people say of a preacher, or spoke of a preacher, who had spent multiple messages on John 3.16. Now, I'm thinking to myself, did he really confine himself just to the words of John 3.16 without going perhaps into other scripture? And the answer is, well, you know, he probably used it as a launching point or a springboard 
to reveal other truths concerning the whole counsel of God as it relates to the doctrine of salvation. Now, in the process of hearing John 3.16, suppose someone simply said to you, you know, I believe in the only begotten Son. You say, well, what about the Son? Who is he? What do you do? And what does the given of the Son have to do with condemnation and eternal life? Now, John 3.16, by itself, provides some enormous great truths. That's probably why it's so well memorized. We find from John 3.16 that there's this God, and he's a God of love, and he loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son. And if you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. And if you do not believe in the Son, you will perish. I believe... That, in essence, is what John 3.16 is all about. Now, but think about this for a minute now. John 3.16, by itself, does not reveal some important truths. For instance, you won't find sin in John 3.16, will you? Sin is not mentioned there. You don't find uh, conviction in John 3.16. You don't find repentance in John 3.16. You don't find forgiveness in John 3.16. We need to explore other verses, the whole counsel of God, to give us a complete picture of the gospel message. In context, John 3.16 fits very, very well. But in and of itself, there's certain truths that cannot be discovered. Now, I want to spend a little time um, explaining or telling you what some people tell you that the Bible says. It's okay to seek retribution. Is that right? Well, they'll go to Deuteronomy 19.21, and it says, Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. There it is. It's okay to seek retribution. Well, we discover, if we explore the whole counsel of God, that there are two separate works. There's the work of the law, and there's the work of grace. The mandate under the law was the eye for eye. Now, Christ came, fulfilled the law, and brought grace. And here's what he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. He met its all of its demands. And later on, as they walked planet Earth, he said, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And then to the Romans, here's what Paul writes. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, let him starve. No, not what he wrote, is he? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Now notice what happens if you do that. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. You will shame him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I wish some of our politicians understood that concept. Then there are others that will say this to you. 
Baptism is necessary for salvation. Baptism is necessary for salvation. And they'll take you to Acts 2.38, where Peter is speaking to a group, saying, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there you have it. Yet we look at the whole counsel of God, and we discover there are multitudes of verses that tell us emphatically that salvation is through grace and by faith and faith alone. We often go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the question is, why did Peter tell that crowd that they needed to be baptized for the remission of sins? Now we need to consider to whom Peter is speaking. He's speaking to men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. He's speaking to the Jews. Now the Jews were judicially responsible for the rejection of the Messiah. And according to Peter, they killed the Prince of Life. They said, his blood be on us and on our children. Generations of children are going to be judicially responsible for the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. That is why they were called to come out publicly and denounce Judaism and through the waters of baptism an open display that they had renounced Judaism and were embracing Christianity. The Gentiles were never asked to be baptized for the remission of sins. If we explore the whole counsel of God, we will discover that the Gentiles were never asked to be baptized for remission of sin. The Ethiopian eunuch was asked to be baptized after Philip opened his mouth and beginning at that scripture. Remember Isaiah's scripture? He was wounded. He was bruised for us. And then, having heard that, we see read Philip opened his mouth and preached Jesus to him. And then he asked to be baptized. Now another, uh, what the Bible says, goes like this. Praying in public is forbidden by Jesus. you believe that? Praying in public is forbidden by Jesus. Well, they'll turn you to Mark 6, 5, and 6. And here's what they will read to you. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. I surely, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, disciples, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in, secret, in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There you have it. Go to your closet. That's the place to pray. This leads me to a story. This is a true story. We have a relative who had gotten miserably out of fellowship with the Lord. And like so many, like him, who really understood and knew the whole counsel of God, he understood and knew the scriptures well, he was always trying to make a point in his bitterness. We were gathered around the table to have a meal. And as we were being seated and we were ready... He automatically starts to grab the food and uses utensils and makes a lot of noise and starts eating. 
We said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, we want to pause and return thanks. Well, what do you suppose he said to us? You hypocrites! Don't you know that you're supposed to only pray in closet, in secret? This business of praying out loud isn't even scriptural. Now, this really happened. Well, interestingly, the Lord actually gives us a lesson in prayer right there in the context. He points out that public prayer rendered for the purpose of demonstrating one's piety is discouraged by Jesus. He finds fault with that. And while observing the Jews, Jesus pointed out that they have their reward. They had the praise of men. That's their reward. Not helpful for anyone else, unfortunately. While observing the heathen, Jesus said, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So we have a couple lessons here. Number one, do not pray openly to impress men like the Jewish leaders do. And do not use vain repetitions like the heathen do. Then he gives them a format, a model for prayer suited to their situation. It's referred to as the Lord's Prayer. We recognize it as the disciples' prayer. When the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, they may have surmised that the prayers that they observed in public were not genuine and probably not very effective. So they wanted to know how to pray. Now it goes like this. Since Jesus provides a model for prayer, recitation of that prayer is the only way we should pray. What about that? After all, it is. The Lord gave it. Now, like the law, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the Lord's Prayer. The law is holy and just and good, and the Lord's Prayer was given by the Lord Himself, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But the question is, will its recitation result in vain repetition? Will its continual recitation become vain repetition? Well, it was prepared for the disciples and quite limited in scope. It looks forward to a coming kingdom when Christ will return and reign on the earth. Notice the phrase, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, pointing to the day when Christ will come and reign on the earth. Now, although God is in control, at the present time the forces of sin and evil appear to be winning. We live in the day of grace when God is so merciful and all the while he refrains from his judgment due to his mercy. He's calling out a people to himself known as the church. Now, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's think about that for a minute. What happens today when God's name is taken in vain? Some people are offended. Ever been in the military? The way of life. What do you suppose would happen in the courts of heaven if God's name was taken in vain? Whoa! Instant retribution. So there's a real sense that God, although he is in control, his will is not being precisely done on earth 
as it is in heaven. See, the New Testament scriptures, as we explore the whole counsel of God, expands prayer. My favorite verse, perhaps the most favorite, is in Philippians 4, 6, where Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests. Wow, now there's a whole wide area about which we can pray and for which we can pray that we may obtain, or rather that your requests be known to God. And the writer of Hebrews says, you know, you need mercy and grace. I mean, mercy and grace is just a very needful thing. And he says, you can come boldly to the throne of grace and you can obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. And then the writer of Hebrews says, you can use prayer to praise. You can use prayer to worship. He says, therefore, let us come, let us Continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is what? The fruit of our lips. That's prayer. Giving thanks to his name. Simply reciting the Lord's prayer often hinders us from freely expressing our needs, our concerns, and the concerns of others. We know that prayer among the early church was part of their gathering. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in what? Prayers. So they prayed as they met together. Now another what the Bible says goes like this. Israel has been transformed or morphed into the church. And they will... Now the people who believe this are anxious to enjoy all the blessings of Israel but they don't want a thing to do with the curses. And you remember that when God said, if you obey me, my, then he pours on the blessings. On the other hand, he says, if you disobey me, whoa, those curses are enormous and they are severe. Now, here's how God characterized Israel. Deuteronomy 28, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not be beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them. Now, in view of today's political and religious systems, the church is not the head. It has a head, but as an organism, it's not the head. It's persecuted, it's dispersed, and it's often despised. So the whole counsel of God would teach us that there's a difference between Israel and the church. Paul describes the church as the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. A new organism ushered in by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We read the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And unlike Israel, the church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. The disciples, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Then there are those unfulfilled promises to Israel revealed through the prophets. And they must be spiritualized if you don't recognize the difference between 
Israel, and the church. Is God done with his chosen people? Ezekiel will tell us, no, he is not done with his chosen people. Ezekiel says, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Is that where the church is heading? The nation of Israel? I don't think not. I'm not sure he could, he could even contain all the members of the church down through the ages. He's going to give them a new heart, a new spirit. He says, you sh then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Two separate things. Israel, the church. Ah, here's one. It's possible to lose one's salvation. You knew that, didn't you? It's possible to lose one's salvation. They will take you to Hebrews chapter 6, where we read this. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. There it is. Now, what does the whole counsel of God, what does the Bible teach about eternal salvation? Who are these people? Well, first of all, they've been enlightened. They heard the gospel. Ah, the good news. They've been enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. And there's a difference between taste and eating or taste and ingesting. Remember what the Lord says. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, that's beyond taste, isn't it? He will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the whole world. You see, by faith, the believer assimilates Christ into his life. They became partakers of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he had convicted them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. They had tasted the good word of God. They were moved and drawn to the gospel, but they never embraced it. They were like the seed falling on rocky ground. They had tasted the power of the ages to come. Yes, some of them had observed the miracles. Those powers will be evidenced in the ages to come. They'd fallen away. They committed the sin of apostasy. There are multiple verses containing the whole counsel of God that assure us of one's salvation. And I'm sure in your mind you can think of some of those. Let me just refer you to two of them. These are precious verses. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, here's what the Lord said. Oh, this is such... My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Wow. Powerful words, aren't they? Words that bring great comfort. And then Paul the Apostle to the Romans. Maybe they were wondering too. 
And here's what he said to them. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? She'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is what, in conclusion, I say to you this morning. Let us seek, always seek, to determine the whole counsel of God, comparing one scripture with another, which allows us to rightly divide the word of truth, recognizing the distinctions that the scriptures make as we consider the entire counsel of God. We become a worker who does not need to be ashamed. If we seek the whole counsel of God, we'll be always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So there you have it. The Bible says a lot of things, but it teaches even more. So let us be found considering what the Bible teaches, the whole counsel of God. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're thankful that we have the whole counsel of God. My, how wonderfully you have outlined your plans and your purpose from Genesis 1 through the end of the book of the Revelation. And so, Father, as faithful ministers, pray that we might always be found seeking, seeking the whole counsel of God, that we might rightly divide the word of truth, might be workers that need not to be ashamed. We pray these thoughts have been expressed, might have been a blessing to those listening this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.